it's hard to imagine that the Boston Marathon bombings were just a year ago. It's hard to relive the tense uncertainty that dominated that day. On Twitter, reports from random strangers and respected news outlets alike spread fears of bombs spread all across the area. But among all that noise, there was at least one trustworthy source, the Boston Police Department Twitter. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by IOP Spring 2014 fellow, Ed Davis, who was serving as commissioner of the Boston Police Department at the time of the bombings. Davis is the co-author of a new report from the Kennedy School's program on criminal justice policy and management on the department's use of social media before, during, and after the bombing. Uh, can you take us through this report and, you know, what lessons were learned here? Sure, I can. Uh, social media played a very important role in our response to the uh, to the marathon bombing, and um, you know we've had a chance over the last year uh, working very closely with uh, Professor David Sklansky and uh, uh, Alejandro Alves um, to 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 review everything that happened and to try to make some sense of the importance of social media in an emerging emergency situation like that. It. Uh, it's not something that um, we plan to do, but I can tell you that you can't make a relationship in a crisis, whether it's on social media or just uh, with, with partners or, or people that you have to respond with. You have to do that work beforehand. And luckily in the Boston Police Department, we had a pretty significant uh, presence on social media prior to the bombings. Now, what uh, caused you to join Twitter and Facebook for that matter in the first place? Well, it was uh, a recognition that more and more people were getting on uh, Twitter and Facebook. It was a great way to communicate with people. Um, but when I first heard about it, quite frankly, I thought it was a way to tell people things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started to use it myself that I realized the importance of dialogue, of not only speaking, but but listening. And I think the listening part of it is more important. It seems like in the report there's a heavy emphasis on tone, the tone that the accounts use and, and how they're discussing and actually creating two-way engagement rather than, you know, just broadcasting information. Right. It's very, very important. Um, you get to understand what people are hearing from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And um, and the the tone of the, of the conversation is different from the way we used to deal with things. Uh, when we released our press releases in the past, they were very official and very uh, clipped and very um, to the point and, um, and not very human, actually. Um, using social media allows you to be uh, not just some faceless bureaucrat that's, that's sending out um, official, you know, kind of clipped information, mm -hmm. but but someone who um, is a human being dealing with a difficult situation. And I think that that's what plays plays out in this. I think I read in the report you had, I think, I think 40,000 followers already uh, when the tragedy struck, and that ballooned to, I think, 300,000 by the end of the week. How important was it to have that presence already established? Well, we didn't have to learn how it works uh, in the middle of the crisis. We, we use it, and we use it effectively day in and day out. As a matter of fact, we stopped issuing press releases in the Boston Police Department. We simply put things out on Twitter and Facebook, mm -hmm. and, the, and the media monitors our accounts, our, our, you know, our Twitter accounts. So um, they're constantly being updated on what's happening as close 
in real time as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've made a commitment to a transparent organization. These tools allow us to be more transparent. In how busy that day was, there was a lot of misinformation coming out about things all all over the region. Um, was social media kind of your first thought about how to control this kind that kind of misinformation? It was because uh, it was very clear to us that our cell phones had broken down. There was no um, cellular communications anywhere near the scene, so mm -hmm. our command staff was limited in the communication that we could have. I had a brief conversation before the phone went dead with uh, Cheryl Fiendaka, uh, who was running our, our social media and, and public relations office. Mm -hmm. And I said very simply to her, I said, get as much information as you can out there quickly, push it, but make sure it's it's legit, make sure it's straight, make sure mm -hmm. it's right before you put it out. Did you have processes already in place to, you know, make sure confirmation, uh, you know, there was some kind of, you know, double, triple confirmation on anything that went out? Yes, she's very adept at that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's over um, years of dealing with uh, emerging events, homicides, uh, other explosions that have occurred, fires, uh, big, uh, big natural disasters, mm -hmm. and, and the sporting events that we've dealt with here in Boston. Um, she knows who to go to to get confirmation. She knows the detective commanders. She knows the patrol commanders. She has their information. She will check and double check with them before something goes out. When she puts it out on Facebook um, or, or, or on Twitter, uh, we were uh, we were pretty pretty sure that um, that everything was was right. You ended up releasing photos of the suspects. suspects right. That immediately went like wildfire all over the inter internet. Did you expect that to happen? No, we didn't. Um, the, the FBI had put special systems in place to deal with that, with the onslaught of requests and uh, submissions that we would get after we asked for photographs. Mm -hmm. But uh, when those pictures went out, their system uh, failed very quickly. Uh, the whole, the whole uh, FBI structure on uh, social media collapsed, um, wow. but we were able to uh, to go back to the social media sites themselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't collapse, and we were able to work with them and navigate our way through this problem. Mm -hmm. Now, what exactly were the? I mean, how were you actually doing that? How were you responding to the information that was coming into you? Well, we we were uh, we had a special team of people set up over at the. Uh, uh, Black Falcon terminal uh, that were doing nothing but digital evidence processing. Mm -hmm. There was another team in there that was dealing with uh, physical evidence that had been taken from the scene. So there was a lot going on at that point in time. So obviously there was a dark side to the social media effort on this, um, and that was a number of people online, you know, you might call them vigilantes, uh, who were, you know, going through photos, videos, anything that they could find of the event to try and find the bombers to see if they could identify them. Um, that was obviously a, a bad situation. It ended up uh, implicating innocent people. Um, how could that be controlled if in the future? Well, there were two things that really were problematic on the internet. The, the the first one was people actually putting phony photos, doctoring up photos, of of the blast site and saying uh, there was a bag there, there was a uh, there was a satchel there, there was you know they were actually they actually some people actually took time 
to, to, to take an actual photograph and insert things into the photograph. And we had to run those things down. They were phony photographs that were sent out on the internet. I hadn't heard about yeah, that before. Yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the problems. Is, but it, Were those, the people who put those out there, were they tracked down? Or? We, we didn't spend a lot of time tracking the individuals responsible for it mm-hmm. because we wrote it off to a very ill-conceived prank. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, uh, it did take valuable investigative resources to run that down and make sure that there wasn't a bag there, there wasn't a you know a person mm-hmm. uh, suspiciously in the background. There was a lot of foolishness that went on. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, m- most of the submissions were very good, valid photographs that we needed to to process the scene. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is when you have somebody looking through a small porthole into the investigation and only looking at photographs, nothing else is in context. And very dangerous things can happen if you rush to judgment in investigations. Mm-hmm. And and so that's what happened uh, in, in a couple of cases. One most notably where a uh, man's uh, photograph was put out as one of the suspects in a large uh, uh, publication. So uh, we have to be cautious. We have to be sure that uh, when people help, that they don't rush to conclusions and 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 don't identify people that they're not certain about. Well, we want to thank former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. Um, you can find the report on the Program and Criminal Justice Policy and Management's website. Uh, we'll have a link on our website, hkspolicycast.org. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. (laughs) 